everybody. Welcome to the 27th episode of the Manor Podcast. I'm your co-host, Roger Bodie, joined as always with my best friend, another co-host, Michael Hamilton. Michael, can you explain the difference between a Joseki and a Buseki to me? No, I know these are go terms. I know that's that's about it. I knew what Joseki was at one point. Yeah, we've covered Joseki before. I think that's like the optimal line of play or a specific line of plays in like a small part of the board. So mm-hmm. using context clues, I don't even remember what the other one you said was, but I'm assuming that's like a bigger macro across the board kind of sequence of plays. Yeah, Fuseki. Fuseki. I'm sure our guest today, Joshua Scott, who is also an expert Go player, can explain that in better detail than I even could. So why don't you take it away, Josh? Oh, I think he uh, hit the nail on the head there. It's pretty close. Um, so Joseki is usually referring to a, a specific corner of the board. And while it's not necessarily an optimal line of play, it's uh, a set pattern or a set opening for a given corner. Um, and then Fuseki is sort of more like the whole board overview. And while Fuseki um, is a little bit more vague in terms of like what's acceptable in terms of, you know, you should do this or you should do that. It's just some like governing principles um, with a few set openings of, hey, you want to play uh, Sunra and say like, you know, play on the three star points as black or um, opening up in a certain way that then leads into the rest of the game. So I think th- those uh, points are pretty nail- uh, on the head there. So uh, good job, Michael. I'm impressed. <laughs> yeah but as much as i'd love to just spend a whole hour talking to josh about go here i think we should uh pivot out onto flesh and blood so i guess before we get started though josh do you want to introduce yourself uh what your role is and uh just kind of what you do on a day-to-day basis in a nutshell yeah sure so uh my name is joshua scott i'm the rules and policy manager for flesh and blood I uh, specifically work uh, primarily with the rulebook, so the comprehensive rulebook. I work on the release notes. I work with the development team to develop the syntax for new cards. I work on the tournament rules and policy, the penalty guidelines, and I also work towards creating and maintaining the judge program for Flesh and Blood as well, as well as an abundance of other um, things relating to the rules or to the game that people ask me to do uh, throughout the year as well, so... A pretty busy schedule, but uh, it's good fun, that's for sure. Yeah, it definitely sounds like it. So I guess first and foremost, the main reason why I wanted to have you on, well, there's a host of reasons, but uh, the primary reason is that obviously Michael and I are very competitive players, and I think it's important for players to recognize how pivotal and fundamental judges are in even allowing us to compete in the first place. So I guess my behalf, and I'm sure Michael will thank you as well here in a second, but so thank you to you and all the amazing judges out there. It's awesome that we have just such a great judging community allowing us to play this awesome game. Thank Thank you very much. Uh, It obviously mostly goes out to all of the judges out there. You know, I've been the head judge for Pro Tour New Jersey and Lil, and now the uh, World Championship. Um, But Obviously, a head judge can't do the job alone, and most of the credit to successful events goes towards the uh, staff that works behind the scenes, and of course, the uh, floor judges and their team leads. And you know, it's it's definitely a community effort. It's definitely a group effort towards making events the way that they are. And I don't think that anybody can take individual uh, claim of that. uh, That thank you, but. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's yeah. great. It's great to be appreciated. <laughs> it's all you, but uh, just yeah, for whatever parts you play, thank you very much. Thank you, <laughs> uh, Michael. Do you have any uh, questions for Scott? So I guess I'm really curious how you came to your position as the head of basically the way I see it is the head of everything judge related and rules related. 
Uh, I'll give you I'll give you the uh, shorter version because I've told this story a number of times. Um, so I uh, previously wasn't involved in any TCGs uh, before Flesh and Blood. I got involved, and then over the pandemic, I lost my job and uh, moved. And to keep up with the community, I basically involved myself online answering rules questions. And I basically became that rules guy online that bas- that knew the answer to every question. So much so that I'd have Americans who knew what time I woke up, their time, and they would wait until the moment my alarm went off to start bugging me about, hey, these are the questions that got uh, asked last <laughs> night. Do you have an answer for them? So that we know uh, how to continue playing this game. And so... Eventually, I was like, hey, you know, this game needs judges. I'd be pretty interested in becoming a judge. And uh, I reached out to LSS and said, hey, I want to be a community judge. I flew up to Auckland to do a calling up there. And then I basically cornered James and Jason and was like, hey, there's some like, there are 18 questions I have here that like, we don't know what the answers are. Can I just talk through them with you? And we can sort of like work out, you know, what I need to tell the community to, to work out what's going on. We spent like three and a half hours talking about it. And then at the very end, James just turns to me and he's like, how much do you like your current job? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just like, well, kind of just moved into a new job. Um, I'm not sure if I'm ready to like change things because, of course, I've never really been part of a TCG before. And I'm like, you know, is, is there really a place for somebody who just knows rules in like the company? And it turns out there was. Um, yeah. I got a part-time job uh, starting off with creating the comprehensive rule book and doing some proofing and that sort of a thing. And eventually James just says to me, look, we want you full-time. Like, you know, you've been doing some good work for us and we just want you on. And so that's what I did. Went full-time and just sort of delve uh, straight headfirst into the into the world of judges and rules. And it's been, you know, pretty great experience. So, yeah. That's awesome. That's what I was going to say. That's awesome. <laughs> Take the words right out of your mouth. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so obviously we've seen the Comprehensive Rules 2.0 come out over this past year and just a real, I guess, uh, flushing out of the of the rules. So I think so far you've done a really great job of, of kind of highlighting and noting like what some of the awkward rules interactions were in your article series that came out over the past year. Um, if you haven't checked those out, they're still up on LSS's uh, main website. So I'd highly encourage anybody who just like wants to understand kind of the nuts and bolts of flesh and blood a little better to check those out, give them a good read because they really kind of go into a lot of more technical aspects that you kind of just would never even think would happen. I think the most famous one was uh, energy pot could be activated before it had finished resolving. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. That was that was a really interesting one. Yeah, when the, um, I think it was the comprehensive rules 1.0, uh, when that first came out, we we were still in the process of trying to like, engage with like we we were just basing all our rules off the hero's handbook (laughs) and individual conversations that we had had with uh lss employees like um ellen or like jason or something so when the comprehensive rule book was hyped up around monarch we were just like oh can't wait until we get like answers and like concrete evidence of like ways things work (laughs) and the way it had been written um, like, and I, I can appreciate, like, it takes a lot to write a comprehensive rule book. It's, it's almost impossible to get it right the first time. Mm. But when it first came out, um, we just immediately saw that, like, okay, I understand that this is how they want it to work, but there are some, like, edge cases that haven't been addressed that, like, really kind of need to be addressed. Like, the game functions. Like, if you're playing a game, 
of uh, flesh and blood when uh, the 1.0 came out it would still work the way that you know you you would you wouldn't play any of these edge cases but you know it did spawn those questions that um i ended up bringing to james and jason with energy pot for example where it was like okay the chain is in the arena so that means that you control it and you can technically activate its ability but it hasn't resolved yet so is this intended or are we just like misreading how this should actually work mm-hmm. um and so we we uh when i started on the comprehensive rulebook 2.0 i actually started it as a side project before i even went up to um before i went up to auckland uh and that was one of the things that i talked to them about and i said hey look here's a uh, here's a solution to the problem you actually move the train outside of the arena and you have a sub rule that says that you control those objects for other um other interactions that you have and they were just like that's a really good idea yep no we should totally do that like let's look at <laughs> let's look at putting that into the rule book that's awesome uh so i guess in part of that though was like the changing of the rules and kind of like making the game more intuitive to play because obviously as you were saying like the game functions and like at its at its most simple level flesh and blood is a really intuitive game i think for people to pick up play and learn but it's really like when you get into those really subtleties of like specific interactions and like that's where things need to be you know obviously ironed out and to that end i kind of want to jump into like the spectrum mechanic and uh, <laughs> uh, for rules and interactions that I feel like could be ironed out. So I guess before I say my piece, anything do you do you want to do you have any defenses or anything to say about the spectrum mechanic before we <laughs> jump into this? Um, I mean, I could go with spectral was a mistake, but I think that that would be an overused uh, phrase <laughs> in Flesh and Blood. No, spect- I mean, spectral wasn't a mistake. Spectral was uh, a design aspect that they wanted to incorporate in the game that sort of uh you know it, it's thematic right they wanted right. to create a permanent or an aura that gives off a sense of fragility like you've created this this illusion that has some sort of physicality about it that you can go ahead and attack it uh and that on the slightest touch like whether or not it's a one power or even with like raiden it's a zero power attack right it just explodes um and sort of in that explosion like things just end like there's no effect from your attack there's no um effect from you know anything else that's going on uh but in that sort of you know trying to capture that thematic aspect of it they created a mechanic which uh essentially led to a let's say an undesirable play experience for some people (laughs) Yeah, that's definitely putting it mildly. Um, just because, like, obviously, I, the like, I remember when we were first learning how to play the game, and somebody was like, "Yeah, if you attack with Rosetta Thorn, your rune chance will pop. But if you just attack it with like a normal attack action, you won't. They won't pop because the layer of which rune chance trigger is three steps lower in the very specific rules interactions." And and I was just like what yeah that was that was uh that was not a very fortunate circumstance and i think that was due to the fact that at the time that runetran and quicken came in their way it was worded was so that it could be intuitively understood but when we moved to like the comprehensive rules especially the 1.0 and 2.0 we had to like pin down exactly what syntax we were using for these cards and Mm. that's when you saw the transition from 
resolution abilities on attacks becoming on attack triggers. And uh, when you saw things like when you attack with a weapon, you know, how is that actually defined in terms of when is something attacking? Right. And Spectra, so with uh, Rune Chance and Quicken and whatnot, they unfortunately fell into a situation where their text was technically correct, whatever way we went with the comprehensive rules to, to sort of accommodate uh, existing interactions, existing syntax. It was just unfortunate that it ended up splitting or creating a dichotomy between attack action cards and weapon attacks. So right. we essentially made the decision at the time, or the, uh, LSS, I wasn't actually with LSS at the time, uh, LSS made the decision at the time that because the syntax was technically correct, that it just simply had to exist this dichotomy between you know when uh, rune chance popped for weapons as opposed to attack action cards. And uh, for a long time, it's sort of been on my my list. Like I keep a list of many of the interactions that are undesirable or things that we'd like to change or things that would be updated in the comprehensive rules and that was one of the things that was at the top of my list is how do we make uh rune chance and quicken like more intuitive when it comes into spectra but unfortunately for a long time uh the balance and especially with prism being a tier one deck there was always the risk that whenever we uh if we did errata a rune chant and quicken at the time that it would could severely affect the meta especially when you had like otk viscerai into uh prism as like tier one decks like right. that was a huge change to the matchup because viscerai no longer had a way to pop spectras with their weapons without getting rid of their huge like uh rune chant bank essentially um but eventually we when we're doing these uh additional card reviews these additional syntax reviews the conversation came up again, and we decided that it was the right time that we could um, officially issue that errata, um, especially with uh, you know future sets coming out where we may look at reprinting Quicken, where we may look at reprinting um, Rune Chance again. And because it's a token, it's a lot easier to be able to errata those sorts of things as opposed to an actual card. Um, especially important because it's a fundamental part of Rune Blade, for example. Right, um, especially Viscerae. Yeah, especially Viscerae. So, you know, it's Spectra was uh, a, a mechanic that, uh, you know, suited thematically at the time, but mm. the development team, obviously, in retrospect, wasn't happy with uh, how it ended up entering play and how it was perceived by the community. And you can even see with the new card, um, uh, Soraya, the Archangel of Knowledge, yeah, she you can see instead it. of having Spectra, it actually has Ward instead. And I think that's a new sort of way that the development team wants to take this essence of uh, fragility of uh, auras and illusions and creations that have the sense of fragility, but without the downsides of spectra, which is things like getting rid of your action points from go again or getting rid of like, <laughs> you know, these resolution abilities, which, you know, make a lot of these cards. Yeah, absolutely. Um, do you have anything to say about Spectra now, Michael? Here's your chance. Here's your huge opportunity. I, I don't think I have anything to add. I feel like that all makes sense. And I think the ward direction feels much more intuitive. And yeah, the ward and allies like with the dragons. And yeah, the, I guess I think the direction that drum I took with the allies is just like, it feels so much better to play with. And like the dragons have bigger numbers basically than the auras but like your cards work against them which feels like a much it feels more intuitive it feels better to play with and against i think 
Yeah, I, I agree as well. Um, I've only play tested a little bit with um, Soraya at the moment, and I, I agree. It, it just feels like way better, and I think it does capture, still capture that thematic essence of something being so fragile that you have to protect it, um, but doesn't lead to those poor scenarios where it's like. Yeah, Arclight Sentinel comes down. End your turn. Ha 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 ha. Yeah, absolutely. But, and I think as well, like uh, I like, like to mention as well that one of the decisions when we when we revisited the combat steps, uh, we actually broke up the attack step in combat into the layer step and the attack step. And I think I, I originally specifically designed that so that I could explain to people the difference between when you target something and when something actually ends up being attacking, which has uh, proved to be uh, a very valuable tool when trying to explain even things like uh, the dragons and Icelander interactions when it comes to uh, rulings and uprising, for sure. Yeah, that's actually what I was actually uh, about to uh, bring up next. And Michael, you could talk about that very specific rules interaction you had with that. (laughs) So I guess... When you say you would like to attack with a dragon, it enters the layer step and your opponent gets priority to kill it. What, what did you want me to say? Did you want me to talk about my world's ruling or? Yeah, I, that, that's a good summary of it. But just like, it's just like that illusion is still like, even with like this cleanup version, still has like that weird rules interaction where it's just like, I know you've declared this dragon attacking, but your attack is not attacking yet because it hasn't reached the attacking step of the attack step. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's definitely a word salad. Like <laughs> when when people come to me and they're like, "Why do you use the same word over and over again to describe things?" Um, and I say, "Well, there's only so many words in the English language that can describe exactly what you try to like say." Mm. And if you look closely in the comprehensive rules, like obviously, I know you guys read the comprehensive rules before you go to bed at night, um, so <laughs> you'll be very familiar with this. Uh, in the comprehensive rules, for some of the listeners that don't. Uh, read before they go to sleep they uh, we try to use uh like hyphenated terms and we try to make up terms um that are specifically used to describe certain uh interactions uh like we use it a lot with effects like we use our layer continuous effect and static continuous effect to describe the difference between something that becomes a continuous effect from a card resolving as opposed to a continuous effect from a permanent on the board for example because it changes how those continuous effects or those effects in general um, have like different rules applied to them, like whether or not they reevaluate certain variables like X, for example, or whether or not they apply to certain things if the properties on those things change. And so when it comes to things like attack, we kind of have to use the word attack on cards and in you know the attack step and this is attack and this has a subtype attack and this has attack text on it <laughs> but in the rules we try our best to try and separate those out and make them as clear as possible that when we say to attack in this particular circumstance we're talking about like the object which is considered an attack or has the attack object identity and like it's it's a difficult situation because you have to as you say like balance out uh, the intuitive understanding of what's going on versus the actual technical interaction. And again, it's just like, you just don't have enough words in the English language to accurately reflect what we want to say in certain circumstances. Yeah, absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. <laughs> what's really awesome about like this whole conversation is like I love that in order to usually compete at the highest levels of the game, there's a necessity almost to like 
and understand these very complex rules interactions because while they're not common, they will come up, such as like Michael's attacking interaction with the dragons and stuff like that. And had he not known that, if one of those dragons was attacking, he might not have had the edge he needed in the matchup in order to actually win. Oh, I lost that game anyway. <laughs> oh, well, never mind. It's a bad matchup. Don't worry. I'm lucky. <laughs> it happens. Uh, so, Michael, like, I guess I'll ask this first. Like, what do you think that? Like, I guess, what qualities do you think are like most overlapped between judges and like these high-level competitive players? What qualities? Well, I guess I would say that like just rules knowledge is very common between <laughs> judges and high-level players. Like, you just have to understand how kind of complex interactions work, and you have to also not be afraid to just ask someone who does know if you don't know. So, and mm. I, you see that both like players and then you see judges also consult with another judge when they're not confident about a ruling which is very good i guess and it's like yeah i don't, I don't know what else <laughs> no that's a good answer okay <laughs> i guess i'll kick it over to you josh do you have uh do you have any insight do you think you could add to this um well i mean if we're talking generally about what similarities there are between judges and players i think there is an overall love for the the game and the community in general like i think that a lot of people forget that flesh and blood is a game and games are meant to be fun. And so a lot of people get caught up in this mentality of uh, the competitive side. And maybe they get a bit too, it's about winning and losing. But I think that the majority of people, both players and judges, are in this game because they actually love the game. And that's definitely a similarity that I see uh, time and time again, where you know judges that I, I meet and talk to about like, you know, the, the question that you ask everybody is like, how did you get into fat? Like, mm. How did you get into flesh and blood? And it was like, ah, oh, this person showed me this game and we played a few rounds and I was playing Dorinthia and it was just fucking awesome. Like, this is so cool. <laughs> got to swing my sword over and over again. Yeah, it got real big. And then like, I came in for like 20 and then he died. Because <laughs> <laughs> he blocked. How dare he try to block me? I punish him. And it's like, you know, it's it's just time and time again, like it's the same story. Like, you know, people people run into this game one way or another. Somebody suggests it, they watch like the professor's video, they pick up a podcast or something, and they just give it a go and they, they just fall in love with it. Uh and I think the community as well, like I know that uh, a lot of judges who have uh like judges fill a whole bunch of roles, not just being like floor judges or head judges. They often fill like back of house or logistics or right. some of the other like large roles when it comes to these large events. And I know a few judges uh who have sworn off judging, who have like no, decided they don't want to do floor judging or head judging anymore because they've had bad experiences or they haven't had a great time lately who've come back into floor judging because they love the community and I, it, it just feels so much better to be a floor judge for flesh and blood because of how the community reacts to judges coming in and doing calls and how appreciative people are of uh, judges in general as well so yeah absolutely. i think that you know th that is definitely a similarity and as michael said obviously like between high level competitive players and judges as well i think there is that uh that desire for knowing these interactions and these like niche interactions to try and get an edge or for judges being aware of like where they need to rule and i think the humility as well where uh judges you know seek out uh if they're unsure of an interaction you know obviously you know head judges need to be able to make the final call regardless but uh, judges uh, are encouraged to be able to go ahead and seek that second opinion or second interaction, uh, second um, 
yeah, second opinion about how something works. And I think that that's something that obviously they share with competitive players because competitive players need to know what's going on too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so I liked your answer. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, go ahead. I, I was going to say, I liked your answer a lot better than mine, Josh. <laughs> There's something that, uh, I guess there are a couple things that popped into my mind during that. I lost one of them because I was so enamored with the end of it. And I guess with, I'll go with the one that I remember now then. So as far as like the actual like interactions between players and judges at like tournaments and things like that, obviously there are like the different rules enforcement levels, but do you think the implementation of the additional levels has really helped ease some of those interactions and helped welcome in more players? Oh, absolutely. I think that the, we we started obviously with uh, casual, I uh, say, uh, yeah, it was casual and professional and casual went all the way from on demands and armory events all the way up to ProQuests and Rota Nationals. And then it just jumped to professional straight away. And I think the thing that people had the most problem with was actually just even just like the name casual for a ProQuest or a uh, right. Rota Nationals where people are trying to grind and trying to get those PTIs or the invite to those big events. And I think just introducing the third rules enforcement level, even if we didn't change anything, just giving it the name competitive made such a big difference to the perception of what people thought like the expectations were because it's a big it's a it's a a big important it's a very important thing to have uh to address the how you say to address the perception or the expectations of what players uh want at these events absolutely when a player you know player turns up to an event and it's like oh this is competitive immediately changes their mindset of how they're going to behave what sort of actions they're going to be taking how they interact with judges and tos at the event as opposed to if something was called casual yeah i, I think casual i'm like okay yeah t- takes you backsies are cool basically yeah like, yeah, oh, yeah basically like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um and obviously you don't want to intimidate players away when i th- feel like that's what would happen almost if like you called like a pro quest at your local armory like a professional level event and people are like well i have to i'm a pro at this game now hold on i just started playing a month ago uh i don't know if i'm ready for pro level rules enforcement so i, I thought and, that was a really good change and it was uh similar with uh, calling as well what we decided to do is make the calling day one competitive and make the day two professional because there's no barrier to entry for calling day one mm-hmm. so you enter a calling day one like i know a couple of people that enter calling day one their first day of fab <laughs> like, <laughs> man like that's ambitious um, that's a way to start yeah. but just having that that change allows people to adjust to the expectations like during the tournament and then of course a lot of people drop before day two anyway so when you ramp up to professional, then it's just sort of like increases that expectation just that little bit more. And then finally meets that sort of tier three requirement that we're looking for in players to be able to perform at the highest levels. So uh, that's one of the other things I'm sort of proud about in terms of how we structured these uh, new three uh, rules enforcement levels. Um, yeah, well. it was an awesome change. And then I guess I remember this, the other thing I was going to say though, it's, it's when you were talking about like the logistics of uh, like the professional events and, and like just judging in general. Cause I know as from like a player's perspective, drafting at some of these higher level events, I loved the stamped cards. So thank you very much. And it would, I think it's strongly my and most people I talk to's preference of having like those already open packs with just like the bands that are stamped just to make sure people, you know, obviously aren't adding cards to their pools and stuff like that. But do you see that something that's continuing going forward? Because I know that that's just a huge 
I guess, pain in the ass, like just opening all those packs. And stuff. <laughs> I, I mean, I think there was a split in the community. Uh, I think a lot of people, when they first open the packs, if it's their first, if they don't know like what to expect, they open up the packs and their immediate thought is, where's the cold foil gone? <laughs> Who gets the cold <laughs> <Yeah>. foil? <laughs> that just goes right in Alice's pocket, you know, free money. <laughs> <laughs> well, not quite, but <laughs> people are free to believe whatever they want to believe. You've seen, yeah, the, you've seen the yeah the gold uh, tunic shredding video, right? Yeah, yeah, that was that was awesome. <laughs> LSS LSS knows what they're doing, um, mm. but yeah, no, I think there's a I think there's a some players in the community that uh, are not too keen, keen on the uh, on the uh, how we've done things. Like, obviously, there is the the transfer error as well so it increases right. the error when you open packs and uh you don't uh put the right stamp on or put cards in or so that can cause logistics issues there's obviously the cold foil cards being removed uh so players are sometimes a little bit upset on you know maybe not getting the value that they'd hoped for i know that there was uh i think there was a tournament over in the u.s where they actually packaged the cold foil with the uh the packs that they'd opened so that actually included the cold foil for the players as well oh, that's awesome it was pretty cool uh, and that's something that we may look at in the future i don't remember what event it was but i'm pretty sure i was in that event and got like a common cold foil yeah so like you know there are ways where you can you know address those sorts of things and but the the key with uh, pre-opening the packs and whatnot, especially for uprising, is just to make sure that we are upholding our policy when it comes to double face cards, and that is right. not revealing that information at the table. Yeah, and, that's obviously critical. Uh, yeah, and like we have, you know, again with that sort of error that we have with repacking cards, occasionally there's a double face card that gets missed, mm. and we have like policies and procedures in place to sort of make sure that that pack gets replaced or sleeved i think in worlds can't remember if it was day one or day two we actually had like a dragon a double face card that wasn't like show like the judges didn't know about this double face card until pick three in the pack so by that time it already passed through like two other players and by that time obviously we can't just replace the pack Mm-hmm. We have to sit there and just leave the pack. But, you know, just legit little things that happen with uh, stamping cards that, you know, either improve the experience for some people or some people don't like it. It's hit or miss depending on who you are. But I'm very glad that you guys uh, enjoy the uh, stamped uh, stamped prepacked cards. Um, yeah. It's a, it's a good sign that, it, you know, the way that we're operating these cold drafts is doing okay with most of the community so um mm-hmm. we just have to try and address the uh the minimization of error now yeah i, I think the only thing i ever heard that might have been like a piece of uh criticism regarding that process was obviously boxes are supposed to have a certain like collation of like rare distribution majestics stuff like that and it's obviously incredibly difficult then to not only have all these packs open them and then also then keep them then sorted in like their actual like box pack distribution but uh do you think there's any room for improvement there or that's at least possible or do you think that's just kind of like i think i think there's definitely room for improvement there like i know there are a lot of people who came up to me at worlds and they asked about the uh the box distributions where they had done like prep with their their team and they said look you know we looked at the box distributions over like you know, 20,000 cases or something ridiculous. And <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's pretty consistent, like uh-huh. you're expecting this many cards in a box. And I can't say that I've opened that many cards. Um, 
to uh, to confirm whether or not that's true and uh, i obviously am not involved with the uh, distribution for printing and those sorts of things right um but the the concerns are definitely on our radar as far as i'm concerned like i want to make sure that players have a, a good play experience at these tournaments and right. if their expectations are that they have oh again it's sort of setting the expectations for the players and if the if the logistics is going to be that we can't guarantee a box in a draft, then I think that we need to improve our communication to make sure that that expectation is set up before the tournament so that players aren't prepping on like the possibility that it's going to definitely be a box per uh, a box distribution. I don't even know if that exists. I haven't, um, I, I don't know the internals of our box distributions or pack distributions. Yeah. But, I think that the expectations are really important to set up, but it's definitely on our radar in terms of improving the play experience, because if that expectation is going to continue forwards that you are meant to get a box per draft table, then uh, we need to either address the communication or work out some way of um, enabling that at future tournaments when we do repackage and restamp these, uh, these packs. Yeah, communication obviously is, is critical because even if, like you say, like, well, we can't guarantee it's just too much logistical work. We're already, you know, opening all these packs and ensuring a, a certain quality of at least the cards that are supposed to be there are, are there. Nobody's adding cards to the pool, which is obviously cr- critical. Um, I would rather that. And then let's say Michael and I are in the Wolfpack team and we're, and we're prepping. Well, we'll just shuffle two or three boxes of packs together before we, we draft them at that point. And then yep. we know we're getting the, kind of that randomization effect and we're not worried about like very specific collation patterns within a box because I would almost rather that now that I think about it, just like actually saying that out loud because it kind of makes it less able to metagame a draft then a little bit. Like, cause that's, that's real edge then if you like see like, okay, well I know there's only going to be two blue commons uh, uh, per box for something like that. I've seen two blue commons. Well, like I just know that I shouldn't move into this hero because this is a very critical common card and I'm not going to see it again. And yeah. that kind of ruins the experience a little bit for me, actually, now that I think about it. Yeah. And I've, you know, I've talked to a couple of the developers about the issue and, uh, you know, they, they say similar things, right? Like it shouldn't be, it should be less about metagaming and working out like per box distributions and sort of like these high level things and more about like what is actually in your hand and what is being passed to you like what are you actually seeing yeah more on the the draft technique about being in the moment and i think that's what flesh and blood likes to capture about like especially with like it's no uh note-taking policy it's less about you know trying to think about the overall thing and recording like metagame information and more about what i see is what i've got really Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I guess as somebody who's drafted a lot, Michael, do you have any uh, input as far as like how uh, any of your professional level drafts have gone so far this year? Yeah, I actually, I, I do kind of like what you were saying, how like if, we're, if we know ahead of time that their boxes are going to be shuffled up, then we can just adjust our preparation and do that because it's very easy to just grab a box and a box is 24 packs and do a draft with a box. And like when that's like, you just practice with that because it feels like the most natural way. But if you know that the tournament's going to be different, then like you can consciously just decide to take open two or three boxes, like you were saying, shuffle them together. I think if that's clear ahead of time while we're doing our practice drafts and stuff, I think that would solve a lot of the complaints about box distribution. Things. I've got a, I, I am a little bit curious though. So when you're doing your uh, draft preparation and whatnot, how many boxes do you usually go through when you're practicing draft? Like, did you did you draft practice like quite a bit before Worlds or? So the a Thursday before Worlds, we just had three boxes. We did three boxes. We drafted three times and used a new box each time. 
and then we went to the the dinner. So that was that was basically the pre worlds practice. But like also before nationals, we did a couple draft weekends at my house, and people would come over and we'd open one box, draft that box, then do another draft, open a new box for that draft. Yeah, somebody would bring a case and stuff like oh, that. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> and then so, obviously before Lil, we just I think we just we went there a week early and we just spent a whole day. I think we did like three or four drafts in like one day. And I think I think a lot of the time when we're when we're sitting down to draft and we're getting everyone together for a practice day, it's usually like two to four drafts that day all clumped together rather than doing like one draft and then going home and then a week later doing one draft. So it would be pretty easy to just shuffle the boxes together. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Okay. So we focused a lot on kind of like the competitive play so far, but I guess to kick it back, we told our patrons on their Discord server that we were going to have you on and one of the we asked them if they had any questions for you. And the first one was about Spectra. So we covered that one. Uh, <laughs> but another question I really liked that we got, which is focusing more on the casual side, like I guess specifically Ultimate Pit Fight, since that's the flagship casual format right now. And I know that there's probably a lot in the works right now that you can't talk about, and that's fine. I completely understand. But as far as like uh, the designing for the rule sets of Ultimate Pit Fight and encouraging, or I guess, like, are there any rules interactions or streamlines do you think that could help improve that format? I think that Ultimate Pit Fight is an interesting, an, an interesting spot. Like, Flesh and Blood is primarily designed to be a game where you can play 1v1. So it's not really designed to play what, well, from the core, it's not designed to be played in a, in a multiplayer format. Mm-hmm. And like you can see that with the the drawing mechanic, right? Like you're always drawing up after your own turn, which means that in something like Ultimate Pit Fight, if you're in like I don't know, I've seen I've seen pit fights go up to like six, seven, eight people. <laughs> if like you're if you're just like the least liked person in that group of people, you just die. Like, you, yeah. you just die. Uh, and that's that's during the development of Ultimate Pit Fight. That's why those rules where uh, you can only attack left or right of you came into it, so that. You could have the, uh, a rule limit or like a, a, a format limit to the amount of hate that you could dump on one particular person. <laughs> and I, <laughs> the development team struggles a little bit because they've played Ultimate Pit Fight as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're primarily focused on the competitive side of things. And it becomes a little bit of an issue when looking at Ultimate Pit Fight from their perspective because they just want to win right that's that's the goal of the development team they build decks they want to see how fast they can how far they can push things so they can evaluate sort of the upper limit of certain decks and uh certain cards and whatnot but when it comes to ultimate pit fight somebody will come in with wizard and it'll just be like cool we'll kill wizard first all right let's move on (laughs) get him out of here we don't have no rune he's dead (laughs) and so like you know, it's it's not conducive to uh, building a you know a, a reliable format for casual level play. So I think Ultimate Pit Fight Pit Fight has been neglected a little bit. Like it's it's still a great format for just like, hey, we've got three people. Like let's just play Ultimate Pit Fight rather than sure. play one v one with one person watching. Um, so I think that there's definitely some development area there. But I think that's also where uh, eventually. Um, the future of PVE sort of comes in where it sort of addresses those issues of instead of making it about a 1v1 situation, you, you can introduce additional elements to, to make a more casual scene, uh, you know, emerge and grow. Um, and I think like, you know, if we go back to our rules enforcement levels as well, uh, we had casual, uh, before with, you know, IP penalties and, 
<laughs> with like game losses and disqualifications yeah. and whatnot. And obviously, that's not the kind of uh, rules enforcement we really want to foster at like an armory or you know somebody come turns up to like a welcome to wraith event or something like that and is given an IP penalty because they accidentally <laughs> looked at the top of their deck. Like that's a that's a shit scenario you don't want to ever be in. Um, For sure. So. You know, the, the casual rules enforcement level was specifically designed to be more casual friendly to allow for players to make mistakes and learn. And as you said, takes these backsies. Um, and, you know, as we move forward, like casual, uh, increasing our casual base is definitely on our radar and it's going to be one of our priorities moving forward um, throughout the years. And we're just making sure that we, we're taking our time to do it right and uh, not turning off our casual player base with um, missteps along the way. So it uh, will take time, but each step that we take is going to be a uh, development towards that um, growing and nurturing that casual scene as well. Uh, if you were hypothetically working on the rules for this upcoming PvE format, would you allow to say if you were working on casual rules or not? Uh, I can't say anything about PvE, unfortunately. Okay. Um, that's fair uh, you know it's it's still very much uh kept very close to the chest with james and the development team about what exactly they want to do uh it's only when james has a great idea and wants to know if a card works at 2 a.m in the morning does he send me a message <laughs> and then i'll uh, send them an answer either if i'm still awake or when i wake up in the morning <laughs> what about super spectra where if you even think about attacking the combat team <laughs> There have been uh, there have been some pretty pretty redonkulous ideas that I've received at in the morning. And <laughs> I tell you what, occasionally he sends them to me after after five o'clock. Um, and obviously, because he's he's an absolute machine when it comes to uh, flesh and blood. You know, he's got his hand in absolutely everything, and that's that's what I love about the the company in general. Is you know, uh, it's it's very personal to James. Um, and it really shows his his care that he takes with every aspect from organized play to the design of the cards to just how we interact with the community in general. And, you know, when when he does message me at night, it's clear that he's gone home and he's still thinking about like what cards are going to be in like an upcoming set or like how far he can push the boundary on a certain effect. And he just has to know at that moment, like, <laughs> Josh, does this work? Like, what do we need mm. to do to make this work? Um, That's awesome. Yeah. It's, <laughs> I love it. I love it to bits. <laughs> His passion definitely uh, shines through. And I think that's like one of the things that obviously Michael and I learned about the cards and we, and we played our first box, but after learning about like, also like james and lss uh as a company like it really made me feel all the more comfortable kind of going all in on flesh and blood as we have like over this past year like just really like loving this game on on a next level just because that kind of engagement from uh a company like lss is just so refreshing in today's day and age do you have any thoughts about that michael Uh, i just wholeheartedly agree (laughs) that's fair (laughs) well it's worked out pretty well for you i think (laughs) that's true yeah. And my favorite statistic now is that when we first learned how to play, or we were we were like, oh, there's a million dollar prize pool in 2023. That's pretty sweet. And then Michael's won 12% of that. <laughs> Double digits. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty good. Pretty good. I guess shifting gears a little bit though, I kind of wanna this this just popped into my brain today, so that's why I wasn't on the list of questions. And it was just as I was looking through the new set with all these new ward cards, I realized like should spectral shield just say ward one or 
would that be an errata that would be a functional change as well? That's a very interesting question. Uh, the the way that we sort of define non-functional versus functional errata is whether or not it actually affects any interactions within the game. And so something that may be non-functional, like changing uh, ward from, I uh, say, changing special shield from what it currently says to ward, uh, maybe non-functional at the moment. Maybe an interaction. I mean, I hope not, but I, there may be an interaction that specifically says if a card has ward or a token has ward or something. So it would change from non-functional to functional. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and, and going forward, though, I believe that uh, Special Shield will have uh, ward on it just for uh, you know tying up things nice and neatly. And I think that we may also be moving. Uh, I can't confirm this at the moment. I think we may also be moving towards uh, Enchanting Melody having ward as well. That's one of that my has... favorite cards. I was going to ask about that one yeah. next. <laughs> <laughs> but like you know, this is this is something that other TCGs have um, done as well, where they've you know they've they've come up with some sort of uh, interaction or some sort of effect, and they realize that that can be encapsulated in a keyword that they can just reuse over and over again to cut down on text box, uh, text box space, which is really important in our aspect of making sure that people can comprehend, uh, comprehend cards really quickly and comprehend mm-hmm. effects really quickly as well. Because it's like, instead of reading this paragraph explaining what like Spectra is or Boost is or whatever, uh, it literally just has Boost. And you're like, yep, I know exactly what that is. Or Spectra, yep, I know exactly what that is. So, Or Soraya, the new angel, just has ward four attacked on the bottom. So like, oh, okay, I know. Point of damage comes in, a prevent four of it, it's gone. Exactly. And it it leads to a design space where we can focus on, uh, instead of trying to uh, elaborate the rules and like printing the entire section of the rule book relating to the card on the card, uh, we can cut down the amount of text box space. And that means that we can showcase more of our uh, amazing artwork that we get from our artists as well, where it's like, Hey, like, you know, you can get a full art treatment of like Twinning Blade because the text box is so small or um, even for Soraya or um, I think uh, Stalic Might and uh, Rampart of the Rancid. I don't think that those have uh, normal text boxes, do they? They're all very uh, small text boxes. Earth or Bounty is uh, similar as well. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's a great way to like, you know, when you when you focus on, you know, developing and creating this balance between comprehension and the uh, design space. You can make these adjustments where you can create these keywords like ward, and then all of a sudden, like we may, you know, there's there's space for being able to create like I don't know if they would do this because they've already technically created a cold foil of it, but you could have a full art spectral shield with just ward one at the bottom. Oh, that'd be sick! Oh, I would spend so many tickets on that. (laughs) (laughs) But like that's just that's just like the possibility that you can do when you focus uh, when you uh, look at creating these keywords that have this repetitive uh so this uh you know showing up in different sets or new sets and being able to condense that down to allow us to explore different options with the design so um mm-hmm. yeah i do believe a uh, special shield will be having a uh, ward as a uh in future but i can't confirm that at the moment it's still on my that's list fair. of of things to chase up <laughs> that's fair yeah, it was just something, like I said, that popped into my mind. And I like Enchanting Melody because I like bad cards. And Michael <laughs> doesn't like Enchanting Melody because he doesn't like bad cards. But I was, I was I just playing Enchanting Melody in OTK Viscerai. Like, yeah, that's what I was card. playing it in, for sure. Yeah, because you don't want to be spending your cards to block. You want to be spending your cards setting up for your combo. And then if you're exactly. blocked, then you need to set up a non-attack action. I'm actually looking at uh, – the, the other reason I'm looking at it is I was thinking about putting Sigil of Protection in my Bolton deck for sabers so because i don't want to block on my sabers turn so then i need to set up the sigil beforehand and i know michael's already like cringing right now 
I could just see. It's not, a, not a bad idea. It sounds pretty. <laughs> sounds pretty legit to me. <laughs> I like Josh. Here we go. He's he's encouraging all my amazing Bolton ideas. <laughs> you, you realize I do play like Azalea and Ko and all the jank decks for fun, right? So eh, maybe fine. might not be the most competitive player on the planet. That's eh, fine. You agree with me, so you're obviously right. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Do you have any questions about erratas, Michael? <laughs> I do not. Okay. I guess I was asking about erratas because I guess looking back to Briar, how involved were you in like that errata decision? Uh, so the uh, when there's a functional errata like Briar's, um, it primarily comes from the development team. Okay. So the development team goes ahead and evaluates certain cards and it's part of their their cycle when they look at like banned and restricted and I uh, say banned and suspension, sorry. Mm-hmm. not restricted so ban a suspension list and uh briar obviously came up on the radar um around starvo and during the development they decided that uh they needed to change its ability and the decision was that because it was a hero because it was a token it all led to the decision that yeah it could actually receive a, a functional errata because you can easily replace a token mm. and uh we don't want to remove a hero especially one as iconic as briar from the card pool just because we say oh it's too powerful um mm-hmm. like you know there, there's a lot of consideration and thought that goes into like the theming and um you know the general like you know the health of the game and all these other and the logistics as well all these other constraints right so the development team obviously came up with the change of what they wanted to achieve, and then they come to me for the the proofing of it. So I say, okay, you want it to uh, do this and do that, then we're going to be moving to, and I think it was at the time that we were moving to our new trigger syntax as well, which is like the first time that this happens, the second time that this happens, which indicates triggered abilities. They were like, oh, cool, we can give Bri the updated uh, trigger syntax treatment so that now we can you know approach with that. So with Briar specifically, that came from the development team because they were looking at the health of the game and the health of uh, um, those sorts of things. But when it comes to a lot of other sort of like functional errata, um, I, I'm typically the, the person that drives forward with that. Mm. And that my, my goals with that are not to do with balance. Uh, like I don't take balance into consideration in like most of my work at all. Yeah, that makes sense. Pure rules and like, yes, it works or no, it doesn't. And so a lot of the functional errata comes down to comprehension, just making sure that players understand how certain things work. Um, and you are like, if you've seen the latest like errata bulletin, like I put a lot of work into making sure that we get like most up to date, uh, syntax for a lot of cards, like right. have infinite number of questions and DMs about forked lightning. Uh, <laughs> and so hopefully the errata uh, solve, it doesn't solve, but at least alleviates that issue for sure. But even things like uh, to the bottom of its owner's deck, as opposed to the bottom of your deck, right? Like you know, we're, when I when I work on the rules, obviously we explore experimental spaces where uh, even effects that James hasn't asked me about or the dev team hasn't asked me about, I can I can sort of see already coming through in the design where it's like. Yeah, I can probably guess that they may want to add this in future. So uh, let's just bite this in the bud, like nip this in the bud right now and see if we can like future proof this so that when James asks me if something can be done, then yeah, I've already got an answer for him. So things like returning to the bottom of its owner's deck was a uh, functional errata that came from the rule side to make sure that we don't end up in a situation later on where 
somehow you like acquire somebody's card right. and it's like oh cool i can put it at the bottom of my deck despite <laughs> mine not being yeah, yeah. And it's like what do you do with sleeves like uh, <laughs> a whole, i can see a whole whole big thing to do with that it's like i guess that's the same reason for some reason you can't play yorick you know i i would love to sleeve up yorick but just put my 20 card crack bobble yorick deck and take that to uh, worlds but unfortunately <laughs> well i mean yeah <laughs> like i saw york and it was like a um it was a bit of sweet moment because when we're doing uh when we're doing analysis or when i'm doing analysis of like card interactions and whatnot i look at like printed cards and often i come up with scenarios that need to be covered in the rules but they're cards from like different classes and there's like mm. no justification why you could use these two cards together and as soon as york came out i'm like Perfect. Now I've got a justification <laughs> for uh, to putting this in the rule book because Yorick exists and you can play any card with any other card. And then I realized like, oh, wait, people have to shuffle their decks together. Oh, God. <laughs> like, people are just going to come up to me and be like, is it okay if I, you know, uh, shuffle my unsleeved cracked bauble deck into this person's like... Three thousand dollar alpha like WTR like blitz deck that he brought to this game like oh my gosh uh, maybe maybe not in like pro tournaments for like UPF or anything but like we'll Unlucky. address that when it comes up <laughs> fair enough fair enough all right um I think we're gonna start wrapping things up here do you have any uh, questions for us Josh uh, is there anything you think uh, you you want to address while you're on here. I mean, you know, I, I don't really have any any depressing questions. Like, you know, I, I think that it's it's you know delightful to be on podcasts like this and get to talk with uh, players who obviously spend as much time thinking about Fab, albeit in a different way uh, as mm. as I do. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think that you know anything that I was going to ask about like how you got into Fab or you know how you enjoy Fab has already sort of been covered. So. Um, I don't really have any questions, but just a big thank you for being part of the community and, um, you know, your sportsmanship and, you know, your positive presence within the community is like a huge, a huge boon for us. And it's something that people can really look up to. Like, you know, a lot of people get into card games or, uh, you know, just communities in general. And I think that it's really important to have a lot of uh, positive role models to be able to say like, you know, Michael Hamilton, uh, you know, world champion very gracious winner and like an absolute you know sportsmanship to the max and you know i think it's great to have those in the community so i just wanted to say you know thank you for your your positivity and what you bring to uh, flesh and blood oh thank you very much that was very sweet <laughs> has anybody ever called you a role model before michael uh, it, <laughs> i don't know <laughs> but i want to be like michael hamilton when i grow up yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, Michael, any questions for Josh while we still have him? I guess this is more on, uh, this is not really related to topics, but where can our listeners find you? Or do you have like a public facing presence that you would like people to be able to find you at? Uh, well, it's interesting you said it. So we, we do have a uh, judge program manager, um, Klaus from Vienna, who's just been an indispensable to um, help us out. We, I don't take any personal communications uh, at the moment just because uh, 
I'm past the days now of Americans uh, waiting until I wake up to ask me rules <laughs> questions. Um, I'll sort of move past that part of my life. I still try and engage with the community and rules questions. But if you want to get in touch with like the rules community, we do have a, uh, a judge discord. Um, I can flick you guys a link after this. And, uh, you know, we have Judge Hub as well. So judge.fabtcg, uh, sorry, fabtcg.com. So if you guys, you know, if anybody's interested in becoming a judge, uh, you can certify yourself up to level one and then you can start getting engaged in the community to become level two judge and just, you know, be part of it. Um, otherwise, you know, you can also judge, uh, join the judge discord and ask questions, even if you're not a judge. So if you're a professional player or you're, you know, competitive player, you want to, uh, you know, find out the exact answers to some rules questions. That's probably the best place to go to get some definitive answers. Um, otherwise, yeah, I'm just sort of an enigma that, uh, occasionally appears at professional level events. And if you come up to me, I'm more than happy to have a chat. Awesome. Yeah. Shout out to everybody in the judge discord. Um, I've been on there for quite a while now and it's helped me figure out and, uh, bind my way out of some tricky rules interactions. I think the only time I messaged, uh, Josh directly since I has, uh, discord information for a while now somehow, um, was just like, I, I forget when I messaged him, but like we were in like the finals of like, our pro quest i think it was when we were playing in the finals of the pro quest michael and i was like how does this rules interaction work because i was playing prism and our judge didn't know the answer <laughs> so i messaged you and you gave me the answer i was like okay cool it all worked out so thanks prism and thanks josh <laughs> that's all right always remember just a quick note always remember to ask your judge first it's uh impolite to go around them before you uh try to get confirmation from them so oh for sure yeah trust your trust your local judges trust your local head judges they're people too, and they uh, want to just do the best for you and your community. Um, but yeah, no, it's great. <laughs> well said, well said. Well, uh, thank you again for coming on. It was a pleasure having you, Josh. I really appreciate uh, you answering our questions and really giving that spotlight to the judging community as a whole. Um, and I guess the next time you're judging or playing Flesh and Blood, always remember, mind your manners. We'll see you next time, everybody.